life, please find me, any of the elders, probably anyone sitting next to you this morning. We'd love to talk with you more about it. All those who have repented and trusted in Christ, who've been given his righteousness, are considered sons and daughters of God. As John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if that describes you, then this passage in Proverbs is aimed at you. You in Christ are called to follow the Father's teaching, and you, Christian, are promised these wonderful rewards. That means that the good life is an irrevocable guarantee because it's God who adopts, it's God who saves. Because as the passage in John goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's gracious adoption secures the good life for us. His uniting us to Christ secures the good life for us. Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection secures the good life for us. But there's no escaping the conditionality of these commandments and promises. Look at verse 2. For it starts off. That means the promise in verse 2 are only for the doers in verse 1. Look at the then in verse 10. If you look down at verse 10, if you follow verse 9's instructions, then you will find the rewards in verse 10. So how do we square the unconditional promise of God that he makes to all those he calls my sons and my daughters with the clearly conditional Proverbs here? Well, first we do so by seeing these commandments as commandments that reveal. These commandments reveal God's children. They describe who are his sons. They prove who are his daughters. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The sheep that follow the shepherd's commands prove themselves to be sheep. It doesn't make them sheep. It reveals that they are his sheep. And I think it's no different here. Those who are children of God are those who keep his commands, not because they keep his commands. Now, ideally, these two circles would overlap perfectly, those who are God's children and those who keep his commands. But we know from our own experience, from our own hearts, maybe from those who we love who are behaving like straying sheep, that those two circles don't perfectly line up all the time. True sons and daughters can stray for a time. True sons and daughters can and will sin and even make terrible mistakes at times. But what a comfort it is that true sons and daughters will never be snatched from the shepherd's hands. That being said, true sons and daughters can do great harm to our own enjoyment of the good life here and now by straying from these good instructions given by the Father in Proverbs. And so that leads us to our second question. What does the good life look like? What does the good life look like? 
The good life looks like spirit-empowered obedience. The good life looks like spirit-empowered obedience. It looks like obeying the commands and enjoying the promised blessings as a result of those commands spiritually here and now and perfectly in eternity. It looks like obeying the commands and enjoying the promised blessings spiritually here and now and fully and perfectly in eternity. The good life starts now for God's children. And it looks like spirit-empowered obedience that results in promised blessing. Look at verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. God is not satisfied, we see in verse 1, with outward show. He wants His children to keep His commandments from their hearts. Israel was blessed by God, but Israel had a major problem. By God's grace, they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They were given the law, direct revelation from God that told them how to live. Israel, do you want the good life? God said. Here you go. I'll rescue you from bondage. I'll give you these good rules that will create a perfectly just society. I'll give you a place to live. I'll even dwell with you and keep your enemies away from you. But for all these blessings, Israel had a problem. They didn't keep the law. They forgot the law. They forgot all God's mighty works that He did to deliver them and care for them. The law that told them to love their God with all their heart couldn't make them love their God with all their heart. That's the problem Israel had. That's the problem we also have. We're born with hard hearts that are bent towards evil and rebellion. And it's that exact problem that's been remedied in Christ. In Christ, God promises to forgive your sins, and He also promises to give you a new heart with new desires, one with the law written on it. In other words, God promises to dwell in your heart by His Holy Spirit. That new Spirit-filled heart enables us to keep God's commandments. So when God instructs us to not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, our first response should be to cry out to Him in prayer that it, and pray that He enables us to do that very thing He's commanding. God, You've promised that in Christ You would give me a new heart that loves You and loves Your law. Help me to keep Your commandments from the heart, not as a hypocrite, not for outward show, but out of gratitude for all that You've done for me. Those who do will find long lives and peace. Look in verse 2. Long lives and peace. That's something to be enjoyed not only now, but also forevermore. The good life begins now. On one hand, there may be some earthly fulfillment to this promise. If you listen to your parents' instructions, you'll probably live longer than someone who doesn't. Uh, the person who looks both ways before he crosses the street because his parents told him to will probably live longer than the person who says, I don't like that. I think my parents are just being mean. I'm just going to march into the street. But the true and spiritual fulfillment of this promise is for eternal life and for peace with God. And that begins now. When Jesus describes the good life, eternal life, 
He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is primarily an intimate, relational knowing and being known by God that begins now and extends into eternity. Eternal life is the knowledge of God and enjoyment of the peace that we have with God as a result of our justification in Christ. As Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look now at verses 3 and 4 with me. We see a similar instruction, but this time, instead of God's commandments, it's God's character that we're told to bind on our necks and write it on our hearts. Steadfast love and faithfulness are characteristics or attributes of God. When Yahweh reveals himself to Moses, he describes himself by saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are attributes of God that we are told to imitate. As we talked about uh, in men's building block this morning, God's children are to look like God. There's a family resemblance. Does your life reflect your spiritual adoption? Is your life characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness? Or are you fickle and contentious? Are you quick to forgive and show mercy to those who don't deserve it? The promise to those who do is favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The good life includes favor from God and from man. Now, this should keep us from falling into one of two ditches. On the one hand, we aren't to fear man. We shouldn't let other people's opinions control us. The fear of man can quickly lead us away from the fear of the Lord. So if you consider yourself a people pleaser, this ditch can quickly become a trap that keeps you from the good life. The fear of man can easily rob you of peace and lead you away from faithfulness. So if a comment from a spouse or a friend at school, just one comment can ruin your day, you'll probably worry about acting in a way that pleases them over in a way that pleases the Lord. The other ditch we can fall into is becoming arrogant and unloving in what we think is a quest for truth, to defend the truth. If fear of man is one extreme, being a jerk is the other extreme. <laughs> truth is of the utmost importance, especially truth about God, about our faith, about God's Word. But if you're constantly swinging a sword, hacking at everything you see, showing no mercy or patience, you aren't following this command. But Cal, you might say, Jesus strongly rebuked the Pharisees and the lawyers. Yes, but Jesus also increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's a difference between standing strong for truth and being persecuted for righteousness' sake on one hand and being a jerk on the other. If nobody seems willing to talk to you about your faith, you might have fallen into this ditch. Imagine if God dealt with you in that way. Imagine if every time you thought wrongly, spoke quickly, or acted foolishly, you were immediately struck down. 
No, God's patient with you. He teaches his children in a way that gently guides them. Now we come to the most famous proverb, probably in the book of Proverbs. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. What does it mean to trust the Lord with all your heart? Well, the next three lines are the first help we can have in understanding what that means. Trusting in the Lord is not leaning on your own understanding. It is acknowledging Him in all your ways. And the result, God gives us straight paths. So trusting in the Lord first is not leaning on your own mental capacities, but using your reasoning and your mental capacities to lean, to put all your weight on God. Your understanding isn't bad, but it is a bad foundation. If, your own, if you are your own foundation, your own final authority in all matters, then you've built your house, you've built your whole life on a weak, fallible, sinful person. God alone is worthy of our trust. So we should submit our understanding to Him as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Think of Eve and think of the first fundamental sin. God's Word said one thing, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan said another, eating it would be good. Rather than trusting the Lord, Eve leaned on her own understanding. Before she even bit the fruit, she went astray by elevating her understanding above God's word. I know God said this, but this serpent and my eyes and my desires say something else. As soon as she started weighing the options, she went astray. She should have stood firmly on God's word. I don't care what my eyes say. I don't care how pleasing the fruit looks. God has told us this is wrong. That's the resolve that Martin Luther, a famous reformer, had when he was on trial before the Roman Catholic Church. He was on trial for teaching what's clear in Scripture, the gospel. He was on trial for what they considered heresy. If he stood firm for what God's Word said, he would be excommunicated from the church and quite possibly and probably executed. When he was before the council and asked to answer for himself, for all of his books, the works that he had written, he asked for a day to think over his options. He was only a man. But that night, this is what he prayed. Almighty, eternal God, how dreadful is the world. Behold how it opens its mouth to swallow me up and how small is my faith in you. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength from this world, all is lost. Oh, my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beg you. The world is not mine, but yours. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is yours, my Lord, and it is righteous and everlasting. Stand by me, O faithful and unchangeable God. I lean not upon man. It would be vain. 
You have chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish your own will. Stand by me in the name of Jesus Christ, who will be my shelter and my shield, yes, my mighty fortress, through the might and strengthening of the Holy Spirit. I am ready even to lay down my life for this cause, patient as a little lamb. For the cause is holy, it is your own. Though this world be filled with devils, and though my body, originally the work and creation of your hands, go to destruction in this cause, yes, though it be shattered to pieces, your word and your spirit, they are good to me still. It concerns only my body. The soul is yours. It belongs to you and will also remain with you forever. God help me. Amen. The next day, he stood before the council and said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. By God's grace, Luther escaped with his life, and the Reformation went on all because he trusted the Lord in what the Lord had revealed in his word above his own feeble, mortal, fleshly understanding. And God blessed him with a straight path. But his straight path looked much like Jesus' straight path after his baptism when he's sent into the wilderness for temptation. Luther had to go into exile, into hiding for a time. He had no easy life. But that's not what it means to have a straight path. To acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and for God to make your path straight is to be blessed with faithfulness, with a life that gladly submits to God and His Word. A straight, straight path is one where faithful steps, as difficult as they may be, are the obvious steps. Trusting in the Lord with your whole heart doesn't look like blowing on dice before rolling them. It doesn't look like risking it all on a big investment that that might pay off and make you rich. It looks like submission to God's Word that results in faithfulness. Trusting in the Lord looks like submission to God's Word that results in faithfulness. And that's the appropriate posture of a child. It's the posture that Jesus says is necessary to enter the kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Only children of God enter the kingdom of God. And only those who always see themselves as children will find the good life. We're called to grow. We're called to mature. But we're never to outgrow our humble submission to our Father who knows far, far more than we do, who knows what's good for us and who's given us what's good in all things, chiefly in Christ. Famous verse in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you ever met a kid who responds to most of what you say by saying, well, my dad says, Jonah could have said that this morning at Building Blocks when when the Cowboys and Eagles controversy came up and Chris mentions the Eagles, 
Jonah, Jonah could have said, well, my dad says the cowboys are better. Well, well, a child who acts like that, for better or for worse, trusts the authority of his father above the authority of someone else. We should aim for a similar childlike trust. Trusting the authority that's deferring to the authority of God. Not what he said in a still small voice in your head. Not what he said in your gut feelings. But what he says clearly in the word. Look with me at verse 7 now. Like a humble child, we're to trust the Father's wisdom above our own. But being wise in your own eyes, the opposite of fearing the Lord and turning from evil, is what we do each time we sin. I know better than you, God. I know what will make me happy. I know what's best for me. You know all things. You teach what's good. You rule over all things with perfect wisdom. But in this moment, I know what's better for me. That attitude leads to spiritual rot, not healing to your flesh or refreshment to your bones. Humility leads to life, to resurrection life, to eternally knowing and fellowshipping with God. Arrogance and pride leads to spiritual and physical death. It'll harden your heart and eat away at your soul. It'll spread like a cancer from one area of your life to another. The spiritual cure for that spiritual cancer is Christ, who not only heals us, but calls us to submit to Him in humility and submit to one another in love. Well, what does this kind of humility look like? Humility can look like John Hurley, gladly receiving feedback and correction on his interpretation of a Bible passage from a group of men that haven't been alive as long as he's been walking with the Lord. Humility looks like starting your mornings by prayerfully pouring over the Bible because you confess that wisdom and truth don't come from within you or from magical feelings, but from God's Word alone. It looks like dutifully fulfilling your calling, even if you think it's below you. Whether you're a software engineer who's correcting your coworker's line of code again, whether you're a mother with a master's degree who's cleaning up your eighth spill of the day, or a teenager who doesn't understand that one rule your parents keep insisting on, or a mechanic who's working for the ninth hour that day and it's still 100 degrees outside, humility looks like faithfulness to where God's called you and where He's kindly and lovingly and providentially placed you in your life. Trust the Lord, verse 5. Fear the Lord, verse 7. And honor the Lord with your wealth, in verse 9. Submitting like a child with childlike faith to God's wisdom means rejecting worldly wisdom. It means looking foolish in the eyes of the world. And here in verse 9, we have an instruction that looks foolish to the world. Give your money away sacrificially. The world says take care of yourself first if you have some left over, maybe you can look like a really good person by giving to the cause of the day. Godly wisdom rejects that wholesale because our care is in God's hands. And giving, especially giving to the continuation of the gospel ministry, from the first of what we have, maybe you could think of it as giving from your paycheck rather than your savings, 
uh, declares that we are under the care of God who has provided for us and who will continue to do so. God provides for us materially, but more importantly, He provides for us spiritually in Christ. In Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians says. In Christ, we can even look at our poverty here with glad hearts that count ourselves rich. The poorest Christian can look at what he has, even if it's just a small apartment with a bowl to eat cereal and a mattress lying on the floor. He can look at what he has and count that he has more than Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos combined. For the Christian sees in his few possessions God's kind provision and rejoices in God's great love for him in Christ. Bill Gates' house is relatively empty. Now, two, two things that this proverb is not saying. Two things this proverb is not saying. This proverb isn't advising you to be unwise with your finances that God's given you. It's not advising you to be unwise with your finances. So don't plunge yourself into debt. Don't plunge your family into hardship and say that you're trusting God. Be wise with what God's given you. Show your faith through your generosity, but don't worry because he promises to care for you. This proverb also, secondly, is not advocating a prosperity theology. Any theology that tells anyone, especially those who are poor, to give just a little bit more and God will reward you with worldly riches is not biblical. It's satanic. Well, what keeps us from interpreting this proverb in a way that a prosperity gospel wolf would? In addition to the rest of the Bible, the very next proverb. God promises the good life to his children, and the good life in this life includes affliction and discipline. Prosperity theology tells you that the only sign you're blessed by God is material wealth and success. This proverb tells you the exact opposite. It encourages us that affliction and discipline are actually signs of God's love and blessing. Hard circumstances that God providentially brings into our lives are not signs that God does not love you. Hard circumstances that God providentially brings into our lives are not signs that God doesn't love you. In fact, the author of Hebrews helps us interpret this very passage, and the conclusion he comes to is that if God isn't disciplining you, it might show that you aren't children of God. It might show that you aren't children of God. Turn there with me to Hebrews 12, to Hebrews 12, where we see the author of Hebrews help us out and give us an interpretation of this passage and an application for the current Christian life starting in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he repro when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems, seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God disciplines those he loves. There are many reasons God might bring hardship into our lives. Our affliction may be to shake us loose from our worldliness, from sin, and even from laziness. Have you ever noticed that it's a little harder to get up in the morning and go to the gym if you haven't done it in a while? But if it's your consistent routine, then the alarm that goes off early in the morning doesn't sound quite so painful. The weights don't seem quite so heavy if you're in a routine. God might keep hardship in our lives to keep us from spiritual sluggishness that makes faithfulness hard. Our, our affliction may also reveal our faith. So it not only strengthens our faith, but it may be used by God to reveal our faith, to increase, to the increase of the praise of His glory. God is glorified in a special way when His afflicted saints are able to praise Him and press on through affliction. Now, ultimately, I can't tell you exactly why something's happened to you, and no one else can either. The secret things belong to the Lord. We can only go off what God's revealed, and He's revealed that He disciplines those He loves. He isn't satisfied with lazy, complacent, sinful Christians with lives of ease because that's not the good life. God disciplines out of love. While we may never solve the riddle of God's providence in our lives, what God has revealed is what the faithful reaction to discipline ought to be. The reaction can't be to despise God's discipline. It can't be to have a heart that hardens towards God. It can't be a spirit that constantly complains. The reaction must be a resolve to grow in holiness and trust in the Lord. God's children can even come to the point of being grateful for affliction, knowing it's from God's loving and provident hand. God's children for, can be grateful for discipline in the same way an athlete can be grateful for a coach who puts him through a hard practice. Just as God desires our holiness and will not let us rest in our sinful patterns, we should likewise desire holiness and strive to endure whatever it takes to grow in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The good life begins now. 
It includes spirit-empowered obedience, certain hope in God's promises, and enduring affliction faithfully. The good life begins now. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the good life will continue. Our obedience will be complete and perfect. Our hope will give way to sight, and our afflictions will be no more. So enjoy the good life now, Christian, but look forward to its fulfillment that we are promised. As Thomas Watson says, the meditation of heaven is a pillar of support under all our sufferings. Heaven will make amends for all. One hour in heaven will make us forget all our sorrows. As the sun dries up the water, so one beam of God's glorious face will dry up all our tears. Meditate on heaven. Look on God with faith and enjoy the good life today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, you are wise, you are holy, and you are love. Help us to submit to your wisdom, to see it as loving, to see it as good. Grant that we would look forward to the fulfillment of all your promises in Christ. Help us to do so by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.